Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And thus far the reading of God's word, and all God's people said. Of all the requirements of the law, purification was that on which the Pharisees seemed to have laid the most stress. They were careful about the actual cleaning and the ceremonial cleaning of even their cups and dishes. And it's interesting here, though, that the word dish is a rare Greek word that denotes a side dish. I thought of... uh, a dessert dish, a place where you put some special piece of food, something really delicate that you wanted to serve your guests. Jesus chastises them for being blind uh, to the fact that they are about to eat and drink from clean dishes. And we think of when he talks about cleaning the inside and outside, actually it's what was inside the dish that's the problem here. The dish gets cleaned. But imagine that what you put in the dish is full of rancid, nasty food. Kind of defeats the purpose of a clean dish, right? He says, they themselves were full of extortion and self-indulgence. The point is that we can attend to the outward appearances, of course, while neglecting our hearts. We know how to smile, we know how to act polite while harboring deep resentment towards someone, right? Perhaps even now. We know how to show great care for our outward appearance, bathing and shaving and putting on makeup or whatever, while ignoring things like anger and lust and bitterness Jesus addresses the individual Pharisee. It's interesting, the word here is singular. He's he's talking to all the scribes and Pharisees, and then he very specifically says, blind Pharisee, and it's singular here. And so he calls on the individual Pharisee, and he calls on him to cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish. Moreover, his other illustration about whitewashed tombs. It's interesting that each spring around March on our calendar, the people would repair the roads uh, and other public works, and one of the things they would do is whitewash the tombs with lime. Now, part of this, he talks about this in the text, they're beautiful, you can see these white tombs, but it served another important function, and that was a way of marking these tombs letting you know they were tombs. Sometimes it was a cave, and it would be marked so that you didn't accidentally touch it. 
which would have defiled you. Another one of the ceremonial laws here. And somewhat like a leper had to cry, unclean, unclean, this was a way that these tombs could let you know that you shouldn't touch them. So they're painted white, big signpost, if you will. So Jesus was speaking at Passover when the recent whitening would have been especially noticeable. So he's drawing on this illustration that's probably in the background or certainly present in the minds of those he's speaking to. We have another example of this metaphor being used in Acts chapter 23. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? So again, an illustration of hypocrisy. And that's why he calls him a whitewashed wall. We bear the image of God and as his people... Those of us who've been baptized bear the name of God. And God loves what honors his name. God hates what dishonors his name. As image bearers and name bearers of God, there are few sins that God hates more than hypocrisy. As Tim Challies puts it, Specifically, he hates it when people go through the motions of worship and pretend to bring him their best while they actually bring him their cast-offs. We see this early in the book of Deuteronomy where God says, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. The sin of hypocrisy is an expression of sinful pride. When God gives a list of seven things he hates, haughty eyes is at the very top of the list. Many of us have ascended up the mountainside and we came to the scenic outlook. And we pulled over and there we stood looking down on everyone else. The view is so magnificent that some of us decided to just build a house there. The scenic outlook becomes our home. You know the view. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, and there the Pharisee stood at the scenic outlook. And prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collectors. Looking down makes us feel good, but God has called us to look up. We see the worst in others, the best in ourselves, and this is often the product of our own self-deception. Hard hearts do produce sin, but sin also produces hard hearts. And thus, the author of Hebrews warns, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. It's a kind of a cyclical thing. They feed each other. 
Larry Osborne wrote, a, wrote in his book uh, titled Accidental Pharisee, when it comes to evaluating our spiritual scorecard, most of us cheat. The kind of cheating I'm talking about is not intentional. It's not like corking my bat or hiding an ace up the sleeve. It's cheating without even knowing I'm cheating. It's the subtle dishonesty of self-deception. How do we lie to ourselves and believe it? We do. Romans 1 talks about this. We lie to ourselves and then we believe our own lies. In other words, we've, again, figured out how to lie to ourselves before we lie to anyone else. It's possible for us to use our Christianity to advance ourselves, to make ourselves look good, and to cast it aside as soon as it's no longer useful, sometimes five minutes after the service is over. Kevin DeYoung defines hypocrisy as the gap between public persona and private character. Hypocrisy is the failure to practice what you preach, appearing outwardly righteous to others while actually being full of uncleanness and self-indulgence That's the definition of hypocrisy. As a woodworker, I have learned, uh, if we go to an antique store or whatever, looking at a piece of furniture, the first thing I want to know, it's a beautiful piece, is it veneer? Or is it solid wood? And I want to look for those. There's, There's a lot of difference in the quality. And so, the purpose of veneer is to make it look like solid wood. Now, Walmart and others have tried to, you know, they buy that particle board with the plastic they put on there that's wood grain. That doesn't fool you, does it? That's the cheap version. But there's actually real wood that can lay over the top of lesser quality wood. But the hypocrite is the Christian who uses the veneer of public virtue to cover his private vice. We want the blessings of God. We want the approval of other people without actually having true hearts for God. The hypocrite is the one who lives a double life. You dress up for church, you say the right words, you show outward respect, for example, to your parents, some of the time, to teachers, to the pastor. Hello, Pastor Booth, good to see you today, shake my hand. Or out in public and then walk out the door and adopt a totally different attitude, a different vocabulary, and behavior. Do you know anybody like that? You see, God looks right through that. Hebrews 4.13 And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God is blasphemed when we misuse his name and disregard his laws while we bear his image and bear his name. Jesus never speaks in harsher terms than he does here in Matthew 23 when he pours out woe after woe against the scribes and Pharisees. Six times he repeats, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He concludes these warnings with verse 33. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape 
the condemnation of hell. G.K. Chesterton said, solemn uh, supermen and imperial uh, diplomats are proud of restraining their anger, but Jesus did not restrain his anger. And he says it wasn't a crazy or a self-serving anger. It was the hatred of evil itself and the desire to set things right. It was the cleansing anger of God, of the God of Israel in the flesh. So, let me put this sin of hypocrisy in perspective. Which is worse? I don't have Kahoot up here on the screen. Okay. Which is worse? Hypocrisy or adultery? What would Jesus think? Well, we know how serious the Bible is about sexual sins like adultery and fornication, and therefore we must condemn these sins just as the Bible does. But the scriptures indicate that hypocrisy is really worse. According to the New Testament, Jesus was angered far more by public hypocrisy than he was by private sin. How did Jesus interact with tax collectors and adulterers? In John 8, we read that the scribes and Pharisees bring to Jesus a woman who is caught in adultery. In the end, Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Matthew 9 10. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Matthew 23 13. But Jesus' reaction to self righteous hypocrites was beyond scathing. Woe to you, hypocrites! The Pharisees did everything to appear righteous while doing, while doing nothing to really be righteous. They made a show of the Bible while not obeying it. Richard Phillips observes that the reason is that religious hypocrisy is practically God-mocking atheism. To be a hypocrite, you must praise God while pretending that God doesn't see or know the truth about your life. Moreover, hypocrisy is the great enabler of sin. Hypocrisy is a sin that keeps us away from God's grace. Hypocrisy is a soul-ruining sin, drawing us away from the true righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, souring others against God, and eliciting Jesus' most bitter condemnation. You see, for us, what we put in is always what we get out. So are you listening to trashy music? Watching trashy shows? Hanging out with trashy friends? The Apostle Paul warned, do not be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. A guy named Scott Knowlton said that he illustrated this with two blenders. 
this, this passage. In one, he said, I put spoiled milk, potting soil, sardines, and anything else that I could think of that was disgusting. In the other, I put chocolate chips, sweetened condensed milk, peppermint candy canes, and cookies. And then he blended them. They even looked the same through the blender glass. They looked exactly the same, but what was on the inside was very different. You had to do some inspecting to actually be able to tell the difference. He said when you open the lid, you could smell or you could tell the difference. God doesn't care what you look like or where you're from or what you do for a living or what race you are. He cares about the inside. He cares about your heart. I care about your heart. You remember when God had Jesse bring all of his sons before him? He said, I'm going to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king. So Jesse brings all of his sons except one. First one in, oldest brother, Eliab. Says he was handsome, he was tall, he was a decorated soldier. Samuel says to himself before God, surely this must be the Lord's anointed. What did God say? So it came, so read from 1 Samuel 16. So it, so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For the Lord looks at the outward, excuse me, for, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He looks at your heart. As a teenage boy... I thought I had everyone fooled. My parents, teachers, and everybody else. I knew how to act when it suited me or benefited me. I knew how to say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. But when they weren't around, the real me emerged. And that was a very different person. I could be foul and crude, and mean, and more. I was in church every Sunday, partly because I had to, and partly because it provided cover, I thought. Thankfully, God chased me down and let me feel the weight of my hypocrisy. I was 17. I could tell this story for a long time, but one, one thing it illustrated for me as I look back, I am so thankful for parents and for other people who had prayed for me because now God was answering their prayer in a pretty hard way, I might add. At age 17, after some very difficult things, I spent a day with four Christian young men in Lawton, Oklahoma. Two of them were college age, I think freshmen in college, and two of them were high school, I think a senior and a junior, who actually lived and acted like real Christians. I was just around them. My uncle deliberately sent me over to hang out with them 
And that night, at my aunt and uncle's house in Lawton, Oklahoma, I got on my knees beside my bed, something I don't think I'd done since I was a little bitty kid. Don't know why I did that, except I felt exceptionally moved, and I now know it was the work of the Holy Spirit. And I prayed this prayer. Lord, I don't know what they have, but that's what I want. Amen. I got in the bed, and I got up the next day, and it's never been the same. God used the testimony and the power of their lives to awaken me. That night, I was awakened and transformed. My heart was turned toward God. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. The change was dramatic, and it continues to this day. For some of you, you have invested a lot in the facade. You put on a good face. It's easier to go on with the charade, excuse me, and to try to keep everyone fooled than to have than to have to actually admit that you've been living without Christ in your heart and that He is not the Lord of your life. Paul tells Timothy, first Timothy three, but know this in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving. For unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then this line, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. You know anybody like that? Maybe it's you, maybe it's a friend. The next thing Paul says is, and from such people, turn away. Get away from them. They're going to take you down too. So if you're hanging out with hypocrites, you can expect to become one of them. And so I urge you to heed Paul's warning. Now in my reading for this sermon, I found some of Richard Phillips' observations regarding Jesus' denunciation of hypocrisy, uh, which presents a number of positive principles that can guard our hearts against the tendency toward this sin. Let me just confess, working on this sermon, I'm not standing up here. I assume nobody escapes this kind of message from Jesus. We're all hypocrites at some point. And as I worked on this, I was under great conviction. God's not through with me yet, and I'm so glad for that. If you can read this and not feel affected by it, you're in bigger trouble than anybody else. But there's good news here, so we want to end with the good news. First, Jesus emphasized the humility that must always characterize those who come to God. Matthew 23, 12, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. To come to God through Christ is to come as a sinner, humbly seeking his grace. Have you done this? 
then you have no need to be exalted for false righteousness since you have the genuine article as God's gift of mercy in Christ. We boast in Christ. Second, Jesus emphasizes that we must live so as to encourage other sinners to draw near to God. You want to witness to others? You want to save others? You want to help others? Well, then you better get right with God yourself because you've got to have some credit when you do that. The Pharisees' message was, I'm right with God and you're not. This is why they delighted to place legalistic burdens on people's backs and why their converts, Jesus said, were twice as much the child of hell as they were. If we will yearn for sinners to find the same mercy that we found in Christ, this will guard us from hypocritical pretensions. I remember being at that place where I was torn. There was this part of me, I grew up in the church, I, you know, if you'd have asked me, are you a Christian? I'd have said yes. Do you believe? I'd have said yes. And then there were times when I would see someone, I think they really need to hear the gospel. They really need to know about forgiveness. And then I couldn't talk to them. You know why? Because they had seen me. Because they had heard me talk before. Because they, I knew that I, had, I was in no place to be telling anybody about Christ. If we will, recognize, while recognizing a proper discretion against needlessly airing our dirty laundry, we will be glad for people to know that we are sinners so that they can discover our Savior. Third, the way we live should reflect biblical priorities. The Pharisees gloated in paying their tithes on their spices while grinding people under their feet. We should realize that true godliness is displayed in love for the weakest and neediest people around us. For Jesus said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Fourth, throughout this sermon of woe, Jesus insists that we must be more concerned for our inward reality than our outward appearance. He complained that the Pharisees do all their deeds to be seen by others. He used graphic images to expose their rottenness, this cleaning of the outside of the dish and then putting rotten things in it, or the whitewashed tombs. What good will it do any of us before God if we present a rotten heart in a pretty package? Most poignantly, Jesus compared such hypocrites again to whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful, he said, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And so, you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, he said. If only we hated our own hypocrisy as much as Jesus does. Do you doubt that you're prone to hypocrisy? Then consider this checklist that Jesus might have given to his followers. Do I want people to think better of me than I really am? Does it bother me when people don't notice my spiritual performance? 
Do I modify my actions to make sure others notice the way I am praying or serving or otherwise being holy, especially under certain circumstances? Am I quick to condemn others but touchy when my own faults are pointed out? Do I spend much time looking spiritual but very little time on inner spirituality? Paul asked in the book of Romans, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you where? To repentance. What has he given you? Given you a Christian home? I know it's not perfect. As I've said to several many times, but recently, and I've thought about it myself, I was writing something the other day. I was thinking about when we were first married, and I said something about we were poor. Uh, and then I stopped. I said, unless you compare us to the rest of humanity, in which case we're in the top 1% of everybody that ever lived on the face of the earth. So never mind, we were actually rich. Do you know how blessed you are? you know how much you have? you know what you've been given? You've been given a Christian family and a Christian church and a Christian community and a Christian school, and you whine and complain about it, and you push against it, kick against it. And we ought to be ashamed. And we ought to be grateful. God holds off his immediate judgment against the hypocrites so he has time and opportunity to repent of that sin. And if he does, God will receive him and cleanse him. Even the hypocrite can be forgiven if they simply repent of their sins and turn to God, this time not only outwardly but inwardly from the heart. Matthew 5.16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father in heaven. That's the, abs- that's the opposite of a hypocrite, right? They see your hypocritical works, and what do they do? They blaspheme your Father. They speak ill of God. That's what a Christian is? If that guy's a Christian, I don't want anything to do with him. Not very attractive. So on the one hand, Jesus absolutely detests and hates hypocrites. And on the other hand, He loves all sinners, even Pharisees, who repent of their hypocrisy and who flee to him for grace. It's simple. Admit the hypocrisy in your heart and run without hypocrisy to the cross where Jesus died to cleanse every sin, including that. Let's pray. Father, not one of us can lift our heads and declare that there is no hypocrisy in us. You know the truth about us even when we have deceived ourselves. With David we pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Help us by your Spirit to cleanse the inside and not just the outside. May the corruption of hypocrisy be removed from each of us so that we might be honest and sincere followers of our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.
Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. Now, I think we may be tempted to think, well, we don't do all that. We don't have all this ritual washings and things like that, so that must not apply to us. But I'd like to suggest that while we don't have the same cleansing traditions the Pharisees did, we do have some of our own. We think we're doing all right because we have done this, that, or the other. We think God uh, will easily overlook our little transgressions. We also easily pass judgment on others while going easy on ourselves. We can sit here and look holy and then go home or to work or school or hang out with our friends where we take off our mask. If we could only see ourselves as God sees us, we would do what Adam did. We would hide. We would be ashamed. The point of this table, though, is to remind us that we all stand in need of cleansing the inside and not just the outside. Here's a great example. We can come to the table, we can eat bread, we can drink wine, we can sing the song, and we can check off another thing we've done on our list. But that's not what this table's about. This table's about something much deeper than that. We need our hearts renewed and made right before God, and it's only by the work of Jesus, the giving of his body and blood. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offers himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Amen. O Lord, as we go forth from this place, having met with you and having again worshipped in the assembly of your people, we delight and rejoice in your presence. We also pray that your grace will now be evident in us, so that we might glorify you and serve you acceptably with reverence and fear. Perfect in us that which is lacking and increase our faith. And now we gladly go outside the camp to be with Christ, to bear his reproach knowing that we will also bear his glory. You have given grace to the humble, and you never fail those who fear you. Help us, Lord, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, 
As we desire that men should do unto us, let us do first unto them. Help us to be a disciplined people for your glory and our good. Unite our hearts to fear your name and your name alone. As you have instructed us, we now cast all our cares upon you, for you care for us. Bless now our feast and our day of rest, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. Amen.